0: Well, welcome to Citadel Square. If you're new, uh, why don't you grab your Bibles? Uh, if you don't have one, there's one in the pew rack in front of you, and turn to page 523 on that Bible. We are going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. So grab your Bibles. Let's turn there together. Ecclesiastes chapter ten we 're uh, closing in to the latter portion of this book, and if you look just um, briefly here, if you gaze at Ecclesiastes chapter ten you 'll see the text looks a lot like the Book of Proverbs um, what we 've been dealing with. In Solomon's instructions to us is wisdom contrasted with folly. Look, look with me. Just go to the be- back to the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, would you? And let's just flip through and watch how the text changes. Do you see how the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 1 looks poetic, doesn't it? You see chapter 1? It's, it's Solomon's poem about the fact that we aren't going to find gain under the sun because God has not wired creation itself for gain. Now flip forward uh, to chapter 3. You see how Solomon says that there's a time for everything under the sun. That The seasons come, the seasons go. Seasons begin, seasons cease. And then he moves into chapter 7. Flip forward to chapter 7 and you see a contrast of wisdom and folly. That there's a wise way to walk through life and there's a foolish way to walk through life. And wisdom and folly in this book have really been contrasted. Flip forward again into chapter 10, and that's where we were last week, and we talked about wisdom last week. We talked about the fact that we all have this inner wiring that we want to make an impact and be influential, and often what we do is use wisdom to accomplish our ambitions and desires and dreams for ourselves, that we really desire wisdom to be useful to us, that we might be able to leverage benefit out of this life for us, for our reputation, for our bank accounts, for the homes that we want, for the success in the career field that we're in. And we left last week talking about wisdom from James chapter 3, where in James chapter 3, James says that God has designed two kinds of wisdom, a worldly wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, demonic even, that creates disorder and vile practices in relationships with people. And then there's a heavenly wisdom, a wisdom that come down, comes down from above, that it was beautiful, that it smelled of perfume, that it was very fragile, that it was something that if you look at it sideways or spook it, it's gone in an instant. And that's the kind of wisdom that we're going after. Well, today, uh, I said this last week, but God isn't mentioned in Ecclesiastes and in uh, 9, just once, and then Ecclesiastes chapter 10, he's not mentioned at all. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 reads kind of like you're sitting down with a life coach. It's real nuts and bolts. It's real gritty. It's real, uh, this is the kind of person that you ought to be when you face the variable circumstances and situations in life. Have you found yet that life is sometimes unpredictable? Have you found that life sometimes is irrational? That life doesn't make sense? That there are times and seasons in our lives where we think life ought to be different than it is right now? Ever been there? Well, Solomon is going to take this idea of wisdom, and as we transition from this inner desire we have to make wisdom useful to us, contrasted and balanced with God's desire for wisdom to be beautiful, we're going to look at a variety of scenarios. You want to work on wisdom? Step into life. And step into situations that you can't easily explain. Step into situations and relationships that don't make sense to you, that require you to be a certain kind of person. Solomon's going to talk about wisdom in the world, wisdom in our work, and wisdom with our words. So if you've ever struggled with knowing, how do I have this conversation? If you've ever struggled with, what in the world are our leaders of this country doing? If you've ever struggled with, my boss is a certain kind of person that I can't say out loud because there are kids in the room, then what you're going to see in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 is coaching. It's instruction, it's worldly wisdom that's going to help us navigate incredibly complex seasons of life where oftentimes we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say, we don't know how to feel, And what those situations in life require of us is something called poise. It's called self-control. It calls for you to be a certain kind of man or a certain kind of woman when circumstances and relationships and authorities and a culture and people that I know are making decisions that you think they ought not to make. So all of Ecclesiastes chapter 10 here is going to read like a life coach to help you and I be the people that God wants us to be. You with me? All right, let's get into it because this is good stuff. Let's pray. Father in heaven, for these few minutes that we gather here and we look into your word, we pray that as the psalmist asks and acknowledges that the unfolding of your word gives light. We pray for great light and understanding. For those who walk into this room and uh, are facing complex decisions, complex relationships, complex uh, uh, difficulties in the ways that they see their uh, world, their circumstances, their boss, their relationships, their workplace, and all of those things, Father, we acknowledge that Uh, we know, as Romans 8 says, that all things work together for the good of those who who are called according to your purpose. So Father, that gives us great confidence. And for those who walk into this room who aren't sure how that applies to their life, I pray that you would give us wisdom here this morning. Teach us and guide us and encourage us through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, y'all there? Ecclesiastes chapter... 10. We're going to start in verse 4 because 3 and 4 are kind of disjointed Proverbs and disconnected. We ended in verse 3 last week uh, talking about a fool that's easy to find because he walks on the road and everybody sees the kind of person he is. Then we transition here in Ecclesiastes 10 verse 4 to a different idea that's going to control both the beginning and the end of this text here this morning. Look at verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, Do not leave your place. Now, uh, Solomon, if you remember back in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, keep your finger in 10 and go back to Ecclesiastes 8 with me. In Ecclesiastes 8, we've talked about rulers and those who are in authority. If you see Ecclesiastes 8, you're going to have wisdom applied in the context of leaders and rulers and kings. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 1. Who's like the wise? and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Now, Ecclesiastes 8 talks about the position That we know biblically as we read across the scriptures that God intentionally raises up kings like Nebuchadnezzar. He intentionally raises up kings like Cyrus. He intentionally anoints people like David. That he intentionally anoints people like Solomon. He puts rulers and kings and leaders in place because of his sovereign will, his sovereign purposes, and his sovereign decree, right? We are not confused... We trust that God raises up and God puts down. Psalm 75 says, not from the east or from the west comes lifting up, but it is the Lord who executes judgment, putting down one and putting up another. So Ecclesiastes 8 looks at the position that God is sovereign over putting the person in charge. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 talks about relating to the king. How is it you and I are going to relate rightly to a king who's having a bad day? Look at it. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, now we have no idea why the ruler is mad. We have no idea why. Uh, was there a reason why Saul was mad at David? You can say yes, it's okay. We're, we talk about the Bible here, right? There was a reason that there was envy, that there was a demonic spirit, there was influence, and David had to play the man when Saul was crazy. David had to play the, the, what is it? Thank you, this. He had to play it. He had to not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. He had to be a certain kind of man during the trials that God was forming him and shaping him and pressing upon him circumstances where he was beneath a leader who was crazy. And Solomon, you think David told Solomon those stories? Solomon says, if the anger of a ruler rises against you, don't leave your place. You ever have a tough boss? You ever have a boss that you go, I don't know if today they're going to be Jekyll or they're going to be Hyde. I don't know if they're going to have a good day or they're going to have a bad day. Are they going to be irrationally angry or are they going to be very pleasant? And Solomon recognizes that when you're in that relationship with an authority... The first way that you're gonna exercise poise is not being moved by the emotional heat of the moment. You ever been in those conversations where there's more emotional heat than there is light? There's less understanding and more anger and emotion? And the first thing Solomon says to exercise poise is recognize that don't run. It might make the situation worse if you leave. You stand your place, but you stand your place in a certain kind of way. Look at what he says. Don't leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. You know what calmness is? Calmness is typically translated as the word healing or health. It says like this in Proverbs, that a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Proverbs 16, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. For calmness, we know what it's, it's like this. It's that you're meant in that situation where there's heat coming from on high for you to have poise and self control, for you to be characterized by emotional sobriety. That, yeah, the conversation might be intense, but I still have control over my words and over my tone. And Solomon recognizes, it goes like this, that a a gentle answer turns away what? Wrath. Wrath. That there's a way to exhibit self-control in the context of a relationship with a superior that evidences a kind of self-control and a diplomacy and a temperance about your words and your tone that in Solomon's eyes will put great offenses to rest. You can put conflict to bed more easily if you are gentle and healing with your tone and your words. Amen? That can happen. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. So Solomon recognizes that. Now watch this. Verse 5. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Now we just talked about the kind of person that you got to be. When the anger of the ruler rises against you, you've got to be poised. You've got to have self-control, emotional sobriety. But Solomon recognizes that there are problems. There are decisions that leaders make that can be foolish decisions, right? You ever been underneath an individual, underneath a boss, underneath an authority that has made decisions that you don't agree with? That has made decisions that you feel are not best for the organization? that are decisions that are not best for you nor your co-workers. And there's nothing like what Solomon is about to say here that causes us more consternation in our heart, more uh, commentary on TV than what this leader is about to do Here. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. This ruler made a bad decision. Error here typically has to do with a um, uh, foolishness, negligence, forgetfulness, or an accident. And if you've been on the receiving end of decisions made by people who are over you or are in charge of you, then you know that sometimes leadership can make bad decisions. Let's look at an evil that is created by a bad decision made by a leader. Look at verse six. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. What do people say when they see situations like that? That person ought not be in charge. Clearly, the people who are wise should be in positions of authority, but what I observe when I look out, because of the decisions that this leader is making, is that the world is topsy-turvy, that there are decisions made that don't make sense and don't fit my grid, that fools get exalted, that the poor get exalted when they ought not be exalted. That the leader decides to put the people he wants in positions of authority, rather than the people he ought. Now, can that cause us some turmoil on the inside? But Steve, you don't understand. My boss just hired his daughter to be my manager, and she has no experience in the field. I've been in this position for 10 years, and they just advanced somebody who's been here for two to a greater position. Anybody ever been there? You ever been in the workplace and had those situations happen before the people you work for? You ever have people with no experience, no wisdom, no knowledge of your line of work get advanced in authority beyond you? They can't even figure out how to use their card to get in the building. And you've put in the time and you've put in the effort and you've put in the work and now they get exalted beyond you. What's that cause in your heart? That's right, cuss words. (laughs) That's what you wanted to say. Be honest, like you've never heard of cuss words. So the world is topsy-turvy. Living in a world where people are in charge and make a bad decision causes us pressure on the inside, doesn't it? I should have license to to vent these emotions because of all of the foolishness that I see in the decisions that are made by people in authority. Now, if you feel like the workplace and life in the world is uncertain and life uh, is topsy-turvy in your line of work and life is topsy-turvy when it comes to politics and people who are in control, just watch what he says next. Let's look at the world of work maybe you and I can have some control over our world of work because we all know that we are very good at controlling the things that we can control. Look at verse eight. He who digs a pit will fall into it. Well, what? And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them and he who splits logs is endangered by them. You want to make a note, put occupational hazards. That's why I read books and talk for a living. Books don't bite. You ever hurt yourself sleeping? Don't you hate that? You wake up and you did something wrong while sleeping on your bed of incredibly comfortable feathers or a down or whatever you sleep on. You ever drop something on your toe? You ever hurt yourself doing the, you know, the stuff that you are normally responsible for? You tweak your back, you tweak your neck, you, maybe you work with animals, maybe you break down, you're doing a reno and you get hurt in a way that you just feel is dumb. Life is like that, isn't it? There's no morality tied to this passage. There's no judgment of God. You know, what happens when we get a splinter? It's the judgment of God upon my life. I can't believe that God would make me go through this pain and suffering. And what's Solomon say? That's part of life. There's no morality. There's no connection. There's no, like, sovereign purpose of God to have the snake bite you at just the right time. Now, we know that God is in control of all things, but we recognize there are occupational hazards in the work that all of us do. It's just a part of life. It's it's natural consequences. Life is like that. But look at verse 10. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. What does wisdom look like in the context? Are there variables in life that you can't control? Say yes. There are. You're still called to exercise wisdom. And wisdom doesn't necessarily control the outcome, does it? Wisdom applied here is telling you to work smarter rather than harder. If you're gonna go out and cut down a tree, you should bring a sharp ax. You should make sure that you do the work on the sharpening stone before you step out and start doing the work on the tree. Use wisdom. There are complexities and uncertainties in life, but you can actually minimize some of those with the right application of wisdom in your life. You ever, from time to time, I will uh, do things in our home because I have a great plan to serve my family, serve my wife, and I will do laundry. And I will find out that in the process of doing laundry, which means essentially putting dirty clothes into a box that cleans them, that I do it wrong because apparently I don't know how to work the box that cleans the laundry, and I go through a process that is either inefficient or ignorant because I'm not aware of all of the implications that go into making sure that the laundry gets clean. You with me? That's a part of life. I need a wife to teach me those things about how the cleaning box works in the laundry room because she knows how to work smarter, not just harder. Sharpen the axe. If the iron is blunt and one doesn't sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. It's going to make you more tired, more weary, going about it that way. Use some wisdom. Now, when do I use wisdom? Look at verse 11. For all of you snakes, this is your snake charmers verse out there for all you people who charm snakes. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. Well, what's, yeah, duh. Wisest man on earth, and he wrote that one down. I I don't, what's he saying? When ought you to use wisdom? There are uncertainties in life. You can minimize some of those by being wise, but would we all agree that after the snake bites us, wisdom is too late? It's Solomon's way of saying, I told you so. Use wisdom when, later or? earlier. Use wisdom early. Think about what you're doing before you get out and do the stuff that you're supposed to be doing. Pay attention. Use wisdom ahead of time because wisdom applied later is going to be useless. That's his point. It's no advantage to the charmer if he gets bit and he hasn't used wisdom ahead of time. Now, you with me so far? You've got uh, uncertain situations, emotional heat in times where there are authorities over you who are mad, and you've got to use poise and self-control. You've got to have emotional sobriety and self-control in your words and in your tone. You've got to use wisdom and insight when you go about the work that you've got to do. You've got to use wisdom to minimize the uncertainty, and you've got to use wisdom before and ahead of time. You can't use wisdom too late. Now Solomon's gonna talk about our words. Authority, work, words. Look at verse 12. The words of a man's mouth, I'm sorry, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. That there's an outcome, the way, remember James three? Remember uh, that wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason impartial and sincere. Do you want to be in a conversation with a person like that? Full of mercy and good fruits. Those are people I like talking to. Those are the people that I'm drawn to. Those are the people that I'd like to discuss difficult situations in my life because they approach it with a tenderness and a kindness and an aroma that causes people around them to react with favor. Favor so that a wise person's word has a result attached to it. You with me? Consistent application of wisdom in the context of relationship in a wise and gentle and temperate way creates beauty. It creates a garden of opportunities in which we can navigate relationships together and well and in a beautiful way the the way God wants us to. But the contrast, the lips of a fool Consume him. Literally, the lips of a fool swallow him. That a fool's speech results in self-destruction. Proverbs say, if you are wise, you are wise for yourself. Which means that you will reap the consequences of either wise or foolish words. And a lot of times, listen, if you encounter a fool... Since we said this last week, we're all wise in here. We all know that. Those fools out there. When we go out and we encounter them. A lot of times what happens when you talk to somebody who is a fool. Is they can't trace the connection between their words and their situation in life. They can't trace the connection that the words that they have used. Over and over and over and over have now begun to reap consequences that are painful to them. The words of a wise win him favor. The lips of a fool consume him. So the consequences of his speech is self-destruction. Look at the next one. Look at verse 13. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. And the end of his talk is evil madness. If you think he's saying something dumb when he starts talking, wait till you get to the end of the speech. That the speech of a fool isn't just momentary, it's cumulative, isn't it? That it doesn't just go foolish, 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 foolish. It goes foolish, 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 evil, madness. It trends downward. You ever have, my my children like to tell jokes. And uh, sooner or later, my kids tell jokes and the jokes start to one-up one another. And the best jokes, this, this, you know, this lasts for you know, 10 minutes or so. The jokes at the beginning are pretty good. But then, the more and more they tell jokes, the more and more crazy and excited everybody gets. Till at the end, the three-year-old is saying like all sorts of crazy kinds of things at the end. and My mom and dad have to go, all right, that's, we're done with jokes. Let's take a break from jokes for a little bit because the one-upsmanship keeps happening, right? And this is what it's like to to, to be listening to a fool, that they just keep saying more and more crazy things, so that the content of their speech eventually results in madness. Fools can't help themselves, that their, their speech continues to get worse. He goes on, look at verse 14. A fool multiplies words. Can you feel this snowball going down the hill? Can you feel this fool's life picking up steam? So that now by here in verse 14, he's just talking a lot. She's just talking a lot. They multiply words. Though no man knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. That the fool's volume and the fool's amount of words is only equal to his ignorance. The more he talks, the more he proves he doesn't know what's going on. He has more and more words, more and more opinions, though no man knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. You can't tell me what's going to happen Monday, and you're an expert You can't tell me how this afternoon is going to go. And I've said this before in our church. There are certain things that you ought not to have an opinion on because you haven't done enough work in the field. You with me? Hashtag Twitter. Right? You need to stop touching that keyboard because you've got too many ideas that are too ignorant. You've got a whole lot of opinions on things that you ought not to have an opinion on. You know, let me contrast this. One of the most humble things, Christians, that you can say about situations in life that come up that you haven't thought about is, I don't know. I'm not sure. I haven't given that a lot of thought. I should spend some time thinking and praying on that. Because for us, listen, I have a master's degree, which clearly means that I have mastered, mastered my field of study. Right? I mean, that's what it it gave me the title. I got it on a piece of paper. There's nothing like being in ministry and having your kids ask you theological questions about like Satan and angels and what they're doing at this time or how many, how many there are and how many names they have and stuff like that for you to go, all right, I can fight this temptation to be omniscient and impressive right now. I can say something simple like, I've never thought of that before. I don't know what God thinks about that. I'm not exactly sure. I'll get back to you. See, we have this temptation in our culture and in, a, in, in a, uh, a place where you can pursue a lot of advanced degrees is the temptation to think that you ought to be omniscient just because you have a couple of letters after your name. And that is nothing but fool's speech. Because there ought to be times and spaces where you in humility say, I'm not sure. I don't understand. I don't know what's going on. I'll pray about that. I got to read God's word about that. I got to think some more about that. And that is evidence of great wisdom. So, massive amounts of speech. Look at verse 15. It goes on. We just are bashing this fool. Solomon just don't stop, does he? The toil of a fool wearies him. He's exhausted by the work that he ought to be doing. It's just too much for me. This whole going to work thing. This whole being faithful to the thing that I've got to do. It's just exhaust. I'd rather talk about it. I'd rather not be about it. For he doesn't know the way to the city. Remember in, uh, you know, earlier in this, uh, look back up in 10.3. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool which tells you that the fool's life is easily observable by all kinds of people. But here it talks about the quality of the fool's inner life, that he doesn't know the way to the most popular places. Now, admittedly, I don't have a great sense of direction. My wife, if she's been there once, can get there again. I cannot. I need GPS. I need More information about how to get back to that place that I ought to get to. I take the inefficient way home, which just says that I'm a fool. I'm okay with saying that. There are times where I don't know the right thing to do. There are times where I don't know the things that ought to make sense. And Solomon says, this is what a fool is like. He doesn't know the way to the city. He focuses on the wrong things. He talks about the foolish stuff. His intensity and his emotion is out of control. And he doesn't even have the knowledge, to use a vernacular, to come in out of the rain. Now, you see, now reverse all this going up. That the fool speaks where they should be silent. The fool should make some some things that are knowledgeable to everyone central to their life, and they don't. So that the wise focus on the right things. The wise know the way to the city. The wise work in the right way. The wise know how to use their words. The wise don't have to have an opinion on everything. The wise recognize that their speech should build up. All through the book of Proverbs, there's two particular things that characterize the wise. One is that the wise can learn, they listen all the time. And two, their speech always builds up. Their speech is always a blessing to those that they encounter. Now, let's finish up here. We come back to the world of politics. As I said, we started with politics, we've dealt now with work, with our words. And now we're going to come back into the world of politics to end it. So are you seeing how much poise is central in these situations that would cause us a lot of consternation in our hearts? That we're called to be certain kinds of people when everybody else is doing foolish. Verse 16, woe to you, O land, when your child is a king. I'm sorry, when you're, I'll read it again. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Watch this. It's a problem when somebody gets put in authority and doesn't have the required maturity. Amen? Is that a danger? That you have the same problem that happened up in 10 verse 5. That the error coming from the rulers that they put fools in places that they ought not be. Here, Solomon says, it's a danger to a nation when all of its rulers and all of its leaders are young. Why? What do they do? Their princes feast in the morning. Newsflash, you don't party at 7 a.m. You ought to be doing other stuff at 7 a.m., right? Not feasting. Verse 17, happier you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, which means, in context, that this individual is prepared for the responsibilities that his position will require. He's been trained, he's got experience. We don't let brand new dentists with no practice go out there and start practicing, right? They've got to have some reps. We don't let physicians just try it. They need to have some experience and some practice and some training and some residency time and some experience and some, I didn't know that. I need to learn that. I need to do that differently. It's no different than when you get into leadership in the nation. It's no different than when you get into leadership in every single line of work that is represented in this room. Amen? You don't want to put the ignorant and immature into positions of great responsibility and authority. Why? You will will crater the nation. You will crater your practice. You will crater the culture. This is why, you know, when uh, spiritual, when Paul was talking to Timothy about spiritual leadership, he says, don't lay hands on a man too quickly. And then he says this, nor participate in the sins of others. Because a good leader recognizes when the people that he disciples and he exalts, when the people that he acknowledges and lays hands on and puts in positions of authority, they ought to be a reflection of the right principles, the right value, the right maturity, the right experience, the right ability for that position. Otherwise, the leader partakes in the sins of the immaturity of others. Verse 17, happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time. There's a right right time to exercise the perks of the position. Newsflash, not in the morning. There's a proper time for feasting. When do you feast? You feast when the battle is done, you feast when the governing is over, you feast when the work is finished. You feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness, which is a way to say, you feast to be able to exercise the duties of the responsibilities you have. You don't feast just to get drunk and make leadership about you, to enjoy the perks of the position so that you can enjoy the fact that you're in charge. You feast for strength. Good leadership always leverages itself for the sake of those they serve. Bad leadership always leverages the position for selfish desires. You wanna see a good leader? See how they love and serve others. You wanna see a bad leader? Watch them abuse the position and the perks that come along with that position. Verse 18, those through sloth, the roof sinks in. Now, what is he talking about? Why would he change illustrations from a king and his court and his princes and rulers now to the house? Those through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Inaction and laziness and leadership will cause problems down the line. Amen. Won't that be a problem later on? It's the same idea with the leadership over a nation. If the leadership spends its time feasting for drunkenness, there are going to be problems in the nation. If leadership spends its time leveraging the position for its selfish ambition and selfish desires and not for the good of the people, you will create a situation just like if you fold your hands and decide to do nothing about the work on your home that needs to get done. Soon, have you found out that the homes that you live in are constantly rotting? Do you know that? Isn't that annoying? That stuff dry rots, and we're in the low country, and wood gets squishy, and then termites and moth and rust, right? I've constantly begun a mowing the lawn. I've constantly have to make sure it's painted. I've constantly have to make sure that things are right and things are fixed and things that upkeep happens. And if you give in to sloth and to laziness, the roof will leak. Same as in a nation, same as in a house. Verse 19: Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. It sure does. <laughs> now, now, here's, the, here's watch him build this. People who feast at the wrong time, what are they using their money on? The roof or on themselves? On themselves. Some commentators think this is a quote of the bad leaders just a few verses earlier. That they go, what is bread for? God, what to eat it. What about wine? We should drink it. We have needs. Use the money we have. Fix the roof, nah, let's eat, let's feast, let's drink. Now, are you watching all these contrasts? You got bosses who are in authority, you got leaders over a nation who make the bad decisions, exalt the wrong people at the wrong time, people who put immature individuals ahead of you, You've got this chafing in your soul and in your heart that things ought not to be that way at work. Things ought not to be that way in our nation. Things ought not to be that way in our land. Look at verse 20, even in your thoughts, don't curse the king. Man, what? I can't complain just a little bit on the inside when I'm by myself. You want me to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? Is that what you're telling me, Solomon? Don't you see the decisions people are making? Don't you see what's happening in our land? Don't you see the choices the politicians are making? Don't you see the way my boss is treating me? What's Solomon say? Poise. You be the woman or the man that God wants you to be. Even in your thoughts, don't curse the king, nor in your bedroom, curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice. You ever heard of that little bird he told me? Here's where it comes from, Ecclesiastes ten twenty, Right there. You ever heard the walls have ears? You know, when Saul was seeking to take David out, he sent men to watch his house. You know, when Daniel was accused of praying three times that he had his co-workers watch him and go, let's see if he'll disobey the king's command. Christian, there are people watching you at work. You know that? There are people watching to see whether or not you will be the man or the woman of God that you say you are. They don't want to hear anything about your convictions but they are watching. They are observing. And what they are watching and what they are observing in the way that you use your tone and your tongue and your patience and your calmness when perhaps everything around you in your line of work is going bonkers says volumes about the Jesus that you follow. Volumes. You know, when Jesus uh, talks to the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among the wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. He talks about two things one is our good conscience, our purity the integrity we have, the morality we have. But have you found out that when you go out there that morality and uprightness isn't necessarily rewarded? That a lot of times we want to operate in life and in culture as if we do good, we will get good out. And there's nothing like Ecclesiastes to show you that life don't work that way. Which means that you've got to exercise wisdom, You've got to be shrewd as serpents. You've got to apply the truth that you know to variable and irrational and uncertain circumstances for you to evidence the fact that you are walking and knowing and spending time with Jesus Christ. This is, is shoe leather theology. This is real life work. This is where your faith and your work and your life start to touch Have you found out that being a Christian in our culture today requires massive creativity? Requires massive wisdom? Requires a desperate dependence on Jesus Christ and ongoing prayers? Remember Nehemiah? The beginning of the book of Nehemiah, the king says, Nehemiah, you're sad. And it's never a good idea to be sad in the king's presence. The king always wants happy, joyful, kind, shining happy people around him. And the king recognizes there's something wrong with Nehemiah. And Nehemiah says this. It says, I prayed to the Lord and I said to the king. You ever been there? That you've got to, in a moment, ask God for wisdom that God might give you tone and words and kindness and uh, insight to be able to answer people the way that he would want you to answer. The way that we might now evidence the fact that we follow and love and serve a Jesus who is full of grace and truth. And that requires heavenly insight and wisdom. This is why wisdom throughout the poetic sections in your Bible, the proverbial sections of your Bible is something that we long for, we seek for, we cry out for wisdom and insight because you you are not going to make it in this culture if you go out there and think that good people get blessed, bad people get judged. It doesn't work like that. Right? Life does not play by the rules. And there's nothing like pressing on that temptation to abandon self-control than to walk out there and get uncertainty and injustice and promotions that don't work and relationships that fail and uh, jobs that get lost and COVID that happens and situations in my life that now begin to press on this desire and temptation I have to abandon being poised and just to let my emotions flow. And Solomon says, be wise in your work. Be wise with your words. Be wise in this world that you go out and have to walk around in when things don't make sense. Let me land the plane on this here. Uh, Turn to to the right. Turn to Colossians 4. I'm going to end here in Colossians chapter 4. A lot of times when Paul writes his epistles, he begins with truth right? He builds the book of Philippians with truth about Christ and who he is and what he has done. And then he transitions in the latter part of the book to talk about how you apply those truths, Ephesians he gives you Ephesians 1 2 and 3 and then he transitions into 4 5 and 6 which are the ways in which we ought to understand how we put the gospel to work in our lives he does a similar thing in the book of Colossians and in Colossians chapter 4 toward the end of his writing to uh, this this people he says this look at Colossians 4 verse 2 Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open a door to us, open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak, right? Paul says, the gospel now controls wherever I go and whatever I'm doing. My desire is that I might make Jesus Christ seen. I might unfold the mystery that for generations has been hidden and now been revealed to us that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That Jesus is the hope of sinners. That Jesus redeems and restores and gives grace and mercy to people by what he's accomplished on the cross. Now, Then he gets into real, real practical stuff. He thinks, all right, Colossians, you're going to go to work. You're going to encounter people in the marketplace. You're going to have family gatherings. You're going to have conversations with people who don't understand this mystery of Jesus Christ, who don't understand the Christ that you follow. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. For you and I to be an aroma of Christ in our culture is going to require creativity, strategy, and wisdom. I'm going to say that again. For you and I to walk in wisdom toward outsiders in our culture is going to require creativity, strategy, and wisdom. It's going to require that we think and act differently. That we actually, when we encounter people in our work or families or coworkers or uh, students that are alongside us, that we think and pray about how we ought to steward the moments that God has given us. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, those who have no idea what you believe, those who have no agreement with the things that you say are true about God and his Christ. People who don't walk into the doors of a church. You and I are meant to carry a heavenly wisdom into those places, making the best use of the time. This is a great. Idea here. Remember how we talked about Ecclesiastes 3 seasons? There's a time for this, there's a time for that, there's a time for this, there's a time for that. One of the things that I've recognized over the course of my life, now as I'm in my mid 40s, is that my life has worked on seasons. And the difficult seasons of mine that I have worked with difficult bosses, difficult co workers, difficult uh, relationships, all of those things, they all had a season. They all had a moment. They had what the Bible calls a kairos which is a season of time where something is happening. And I recognize as I look back in all honesty that God has deepened me in those seasons of difficulty. He has worked stuff into me that conflict and suffering and difficulty, they, they did their mysterious work in my heart and my soul to do things in me and to bring me to maturity. And for you who are walking through seasons of difficulty and suffering, where you are having to apply what Solomon is talking about in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, listen to me. It is just a season there will be a day when you walk out the door of that job and you will not come back. That there will be people that God brings into your life and it will just be for a season where you might have influence to steward the moments that God has given you. And Paul says, don't waste them. Make the best use of them. How do I do that? I walk in wisdom. Now, watch what he says next. Let your speech do you want to exhibit the aroma of Christ in relationship with people? Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt. Isn't that good? Last week it was perfume. This week it's seasoning with salt. Make it savory, the things that you talk about. Uplift, build up, encourage. One of the verses that Suzanne and I have young couples uh, memorize when we uh, talk to them about stepping into marriage is Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I missed a part of it. Only such is good for building up. I should memorize it. For building up something. Read it in your Bible. That's the point. Look at your Bible. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Every single person that God brings into your life, you have the opportunity to influence and to steward for you to be an influence in the lives of people that God has given you. That's the goal. Paul just prayed that in the beginning first two verses, that I might have boldness, that I might know how I ought to say what I need to say where God has put me. And he prays the same thing for the Colossians. So do you want to apply wisdom in the areas of life that God has given you? Strive for self-control. Strive for poise. Don't let these external circumstances dictate what's happening in here. You respond out of the goodness and the truth and the grace and the mercy that you have received in Jesus Christ. And what you will spread around you is an influential wisdom that cannot be argued with. Because your hope is in him. Your future is in him. And you've got one season, one moment, one time where you've got a chance to walk in wisdom with outsiders. May that be true of our church. Father in heaven, we ask for your grace to make this true of the ways in which we speak and think and act with one another. Father, as we now leave and go out into this city, into our relationships and conversations with those in our workplace, would you give us wisdom? We ask that you would give us the self-control to use our tone and our tongue in a ways that build up, that our speech would be seasoned with salt that we might know how to answer everyone. And Father, though it is uncertain out there, though leaders make all sorts of bad decisions, would we be a people who are characterized by faith and trust in your good purposes toward us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen.